And Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of the rushing of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink. And Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel. And he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, there is nothing. And he said, go again seven times. And at the seventh time, he said, behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come before you this morning thankful for your word. We thank you for your divine revelation to us from Genesis to Revelation, finding its climax in the glory of your own Son, crucified and resurrected. We thank you for your spirit who comes to dwell in us, which your own son said was to our advantage. And so we thank you, Holy Spirit, that you take the living word and make it alive in us and to us. And I pray that you would do that now. And would you convict us of our sin where necessary? Would you encourage us? But would you, above all, glorify the Lord Jesus Christ through your word? In his name we pray. Amen. Well, it's a privilege to be with you guys. Uh, Brian and I have been friends for quite some years now, and uh, he, he may say I've been an encouragement to him, but uh, it goes both ways. He has been an incredible encouragement to me. In fact, in 2017, I was on sabbatical, and oftentimes Brian was the one consistently uh, checking in and making sure that I was doing okay. And so I'm, I'm very thankful you guys allowed him to go on sabbatical, and I talked to him just yesterday, and the Lord seems to be doing some really sweet things in his heart and in his soul, so uh, keep, keep praying for him. Uh, part of the difficulty about coming into a church like this and just praying one sermon is you don't have the history of riding through 1 Kings uh, with me, and, and so I'm going to try to do my best as I preach my most recent sermon in a way that also gives you as much context so you don't fill out a loop, so uh, let's, let's see how this how this works. So leading up to this passage today, uh, we spent a few weeks in the, in the first part of 1 Kings 18. And 1 Kings 18 is kind of the most popular passage in 1 Kings for a lot of people. It's what people know Elijah for. Elijah goes up this mountain, Mount Carmel, and he goes up one lonely prophet of Yahweh against 450 prophets of Baal, a false god, and Asherah, 400 prophets, another false god. So you have this one prophet going up amongst this sea of false prophets. And there's this thing that often is called the God contest. And Elijah basically says, okay, for all of you who worship Baal and Asherah, I want you to set up this altar. I want you to take this sacrifice and do that here. I'm going to do the same thing over here. I want you to go first. I'm going to go ahead and be a very hospitable prophet. Go ahead and call on your gods. Tell them to, sac to bring down fire upon this sacrifice. And so from morning until noon, they're, they're walking circles around this altar they built. They're calling on their gods. And Elijah starts to mock them. 
he actually says, where's your gods? He starts to say, maybe, maybe they're musing or meditating. Maybe, they're, maybe your god's in the bathroom relieving himself. He says, maybe he's sleeping. And then he says, maybe yell a little louder. And so they keep trying. Then they start cutting themselves. It's the same word for tattoo in Leviticus 28:19. It was a, an act done to appease the gods, to get their attention. And still there's nothing but silence. And then Elijah prays one time, fire comes down from heaven, consumes the sacrifice, making absolutely clear there is one God and one God only, Yahweh, the God of life. Now part of this, the context was that these people, Israel, God's people, had fallen into this false worship because the the God Baal, the false God, was known as this God of life who would bring rain and harvest And they have been in this drought for three and a half years. And Yahweh wasn't doing what they wanted. So they started to worship this false god who promised these things. So right there on the mountaintop, it was God's decisive victory over these false gods to show that no one causes droughts and no one brings the rain but him. And so that's where we start off this morning. Now, to go back a tiny little bit contextually, in the midst of this severe drought, and I want you to imagine three and a half years of drought would have taken toll, especially on people who who their life was attached intimately to farming. No water means no life. But at the very beginning of chapter 18, we read this in verse 1. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, go, show yourself to Ahab, And I will send rain upon the earth. So although this God contest on the top of Mount Carmel was was exciting. And we often tie Elijah to that event. The main promise, the main thrust of the text. Is actually God's promise to send rain. That was what the people longed for the most. But the God contest in a sense had to be witnessed. So there would be no mistake who it was that would send the rain. Not Baal, not Asherah, but Yahweh, the one true God. And so our passage passage this morning, verses 41 through 46, is indeed the main event. It is the only true God sending the rain the people so desperately longed for, so needed for life. And in obedience to what God commanded Elijah in verse 1, the rain is actually something that God wanted Ahab, this evil king, to see himself. You see, if you go back a little bit, Ahab had actually submitted to Jezebel, this evil princess, in guiding people into this false worship. And indeed, at his own hands, many prophets of God were were killed and slaughtered. But part of God's providence here was that this king, who was supposed to rule justly, would see the rain that God himself promised through Elijah. So after God poured down fire from heaven on the top of Mount Carmel, this morning we're going to see that God now pours down rain as irrefutable evidence that he alone is God. If you look with me at verse 41, it says, Elijah said to Ahab, so he comes up to the king, and he says, go up, talking about Mount Carmel, go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound 
of rushing rain. Now we really need to pay attention to what is going on here. God, God's already promised, as we've seen, to send rain in 18.1. Elijah hears the rain. But what we're going to see next is actually meant to shock us a little bit. Because God's already promised something. Elijah already hears that promise coming to fruition. But then we read in verse 42. So Ahab went up to eat and drink. And Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel. And he bowed himself down on the earth. And put his face between his knees. This is an incredibly important point that if we move on too quickly, we might miss. And it's meant to teach us something significant about God and about us. Even though God has already promised the rain, as sure as day it's going to come because God cannot lie. If he makes a promise, it's going to come to fruition. And even though Elijah can already hear that promise coming true, what does Elijah do? praise how many of us believing that God will keep his promises I mean think of a promise that you generally find easy to believe that you know that God will bring about how many of us knowing that he will keep his promises still find ourselves on our knees praying and pleading for them to come about I mean the logic is why pray if God already has promised, God alone has the power to bring it about, and we know that God will do it, what's the point of praying, right? If we have a, a large view of sovereignty, oftentimes what we're, what we're you know, condemned for is not praying, not evangelizing. I mean, what's the point of praying? God's powerful. He's going to do exactly what he says. So why pray? Well, I think asking these questions of ourselves may just reveal why there is often such a lack of prayer in Christ's body today. You see, this scene is meant to teach us that prayer is more than just requesting the things that we need. God is not a genie that is summoned through the power of prayer, but he's actually a God who delights to see his people praying. And he delights that his children want to be with him. Believing his promises will come to pass. 1 John 5.14 says it this way. This is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything, key phrase here, according to his will, he hears us. You see, Elijah knew the will of God. God already promised him, go tell Ahab it's going to rain. Elijah hears the rain. God's will is for the rain to come. And Elijah falls on his face and prays according to the will of his God. And so what we're seeing is this humble prophet bowed down, who just was a part of one of the biggest events in redemptive history, falling flat on his face on top of the mountain, pleading that God would come and bring to pass what he already knew was going to come true. Dale Ralph Davis, one of my favorite Old Testament scholars, he says this with a little bit of wit in his words. Uh, Pardon the humor if you don't like it, but... It's, it's funny, I think. Uh, he says, it seems a bit ironic to see the brash Baal buster of verses 21 through 40 turned into the humble supplicant of verse 42. 
right? First Kings 18 is famous for this, this bold prophet calling down fire from heaven, God doing this amazing thing, and then all of a sudden, it's almost shocking. He's on his face praying for rain, rain that's already been promised. But you see, his humility and his prayers of desperation, they only shock us because we typically identify Elijah's godliness as doing these amazing things, these big things that happened on the top of Mount Carmel. But if we read the whole book of 1 Kings, especially the life and ministry of Elijah, we find a humble prophet who's known most clearly for his prayers. All right, if you go back a bit, there's a, there's a widow and her son who are starving from the drought. They, they have no way to make food and, and God sends Elijah to them. And God takes this tiny little bit of food and water that the widow has left, their last meal, they're preparing to die. Elijah prays and God multiplies it into an endless amount of food and water. In the very next passage, even though God had just provided that, the son becomes ill and dies. Elijah takes the son in his arms and starts praying over him three times and the son is miraculously resurrected. Yes, on the top of Mount Carmel, fire came down, but it was because Elijah prayed. And then here this morning, we're reading again, God has promised rain, and Elijah's response is to pray. Elijah's life is most clearly marked by his confession of his own inability as he continues over and over again resorting to crying out to Yahweh for what he himself cannot bring about. In our passage, rain. Interestingly enough, this is how James describes Elijah. In the New Testament. You think that James could have kind of hyped up Elijah a bit, right? He said, man, Elijah, he was this great prophet. He called down fire from heaven and it happened. But he leaves that out of his whole description. He actually says this in James 5, 17 and 18. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. You see, to James, Elijah's most important quality was his humble dependence upon God. I love James's way of saying to us, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He could have said anything. But he's writing to this New Testament church who's struggling in many ways, and he's saying... That guy Elijah that, that you know about that's part of all of our tradition and our history, he's just like you. He was born in sin. He has insecurities. He had fears. He had all these things. He has a nature like ours. And, and what I think James is trying to do is tell this, this weak New Testament church that is struggling. The answer isn't big, radical events like calling down fire from heaven, although God may call us to things. But it's actual humble dependence upon God through prayer. Oftentimes the secret prayers that no one sees. Where we are communing with God. And no one ever knows. This means that prayer ought not to be something we think is reserved for the pastors or the deacons. But it is for everybody who is united to Christ by faith. 
So let me ask you a couple questions. When you know God's promises to be true, do you still pray? Do you pray for God to save you today, even though you trust in his finished work? Do you pray for God to provide, even though one of his names is provider, and you know that he will provide? Do you pray for God to make himself known to you, even though you have been chosen by the Father, that his Son has revealed himself in the scriptures, and his helper lives within you, making his word alive to you? Or have you stopped praying, except for meals, because that's the American Christian thing to do. And you've already concluded in your heart that you aren't even sure God listens. So what's the point of praying? Martin Lloyd-Jones once said that you can tell the health of a church by how many people show up to the prayer meeting. I have to confess I've been a pastor now full-time for almost 12 years, and one of the most discouraging things to me is the lack of people that show up to the prayer meeting. If you put on events for kids or, you know, do some more teaching that will feed more of our intellect because, you know, we're all starving for more information, then people come. But if you say, we're going to pray for an hour and a half tonight, it is the least attended thing in most churches. This was the case in Lloyd-Jones' day, too, before all of the distractions we have today. I mean, as productive Americans, what, why pray if we believe in a sovereign God? He's going to bring about whatever he wants, right? So we can finish that show that's a little bit more exciting than prayer. We could catch up on our finances. We could get our steps in for the day, because at least these make us feel like we did something. Why pray? Lloyd-Jones concludes that section by saying, things are not well in the Christian church. What's the matter? In our folly, we've been trying to build and to run the Christian church without God. We have forgotten the prayer meeting. See, Elijah knows rain will come, but he still prays. And what we see next might even challenge us a bit more. As this evil king Ahab goes up to the top of the mountain with his cliff bar and his Gatorade, verse 43 tells us that Elijah says to his own servant, go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, there is nothing. And he said, go again, seven times. So Elijah's servant, he hikes up the mountain and the rain that God had promised and the same rain that Elijah had heard is nowhere to be seen. The sky is cloudless to Elijah's servant. So Elijah commands his servant to go up seven times in total. Now I don't know about you guys, but if I'm Elijah's servant, I'm probably only wanting to go up once and that's enough evidence for me. And in fact, I like to hike a lot and and so I went in and looked at what kind of hike Mount Carmel would have been. Uh, Mount Carmel is about a 10 and a half mile hike and 1,800 feet in elevation. If you've ever hiked 10 and a half miles with 1,800 feet of elevation, the first thing you want to do is come down, turn the air conditioning on in your car, and go get a California burrito. (laughs) To go up six more times would seem like insanity to me. I I would ask Elijah, what is the point of this? 
I mean, in total, that's 73 and a half miles and over 12,000 feet of elevation. But like a good servant, he obeys the prophet. He goes up and down and up and down. And we should all know that any time the word seven or God commanding people to do things seven times should cause our ears to start to perk up. Like something is about to happen. If you remember the, the walls of Jericho, right? God commanded them. Walk around the city, around the gates seven times. And on the seventh time, blow your trumpets and the walls are going to fall. There's all kinds of scenarios like that. So seven is important. And so we read in verse 44. And at the seventh time he said, Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, Go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. So he sends his servant up a final time to tell Ahab, see, see that little cloud way out there? Now is the time to get in your chariot and go because that little cloud that looks insignificant will turn into a massive rainstorm. Now is the time to go. The question we ought to ask here, especially if you understood what happened earlier in 1 Kings 18 is why does God seem to answer Elijah so quickly in the God contest? But here, why does it take so much longer? Right, seven times. It's repetitive. It's work for his servant. Why is it for us even sometimes that we ask God and he immediately answers and other times we're waiting decades? I'm going to give you the most insane theological answer you're ever going to hear. I have no idea. Oftentimes, it is a mystery. You see, Elijah mocked the prophets of Baal and Asherah because their God wasn't answering and taking too long. And yet here's Elijah probably having to figure out, hold on a second, I just mocked them, and God's not answering in, in the speed that I would like. But if we look back at redemptive history, this is the same thing for all the people of God. Sometimes God promises to deliver his people out of slavery and he does it very quickly. Sometimes he promises his people a child and it takes 25 years. The point we're supposed to take is that God is a God who hears, who sees, and who knows. And we can say with absolute assurance that he is beckoning us into this life of humble dependence, not just to get what we want but because he loves to be with his children. It is also an acknowledgement that God rules and he reigns, and while also caring deeply about his people and their needs, sometimes the thing he wants to do most in our lives is to use waiting to help us learn to trust. That's what he wants. He wants our hearts to trust him. One of my favorite things in the world we live in a mobile home, and so it means anything done in the mobile home is heard three houses down. It's loud, there's echoes, but as I drive into my driveway after a long day, one of my favorite things is my kids are still young enough, eight and nine years old, that I hear them sprint through the house. And as I open the door, the screams, Daddy! And they're not saying, Daddy, I need you to do this, I need you to do this. It's, Daddy, we missed you. 
Daddy, come play with us. Come spend time with us. And oftentimes, we have misunderstood our Father in Heaven to be this person that we just go to to ask for things. When I, If you're a dad in here and you know what that feels like for your kids to come running to you, there's nothing more satisfying in the world. Our Father wants us to be with Him. But oftentimes we're treating Him like someone who just gives us stuff rather than joyfully running into His presence. You see, all along, God was going to bring the rain. And all along, I think Elijah believed that. Yet all along, Elijah prayed because his humility led him into a deep dependence upon God that actually made communion with God more desirable than even answered prayers. Not only that, Elijah's humble prayers were preparing him for an act of humility. We read about this in verse 45 and 46. It says, And in a little while the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. The rain began pouring. I mean, three and a half years with no rain. I think life would have stopped for Israel as they would have just walked outside and just enjoyed God finally delivering what they needed so badly. But Ahab, the the evil king who has done so much wrong in Israel, now he sees the rain coming down after the God contest. So he's seen this this crazy, crazy decisive action of God burning up this sacrifice. And now he sees the rain that God promised coming down upon the earth. And the humble prayers of Elijah quickly turn into this incredible act of humility. We read that Elijah ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Now maybe Elijah had his servant hike up seven times. And it starts to make sense here because... He, he probably had an idea this was coming. And that, that run from Mount Carmel to Jezreel is 17 miles. And what you have here is you have Ahab in a chariot, which is easy work for him. But you have this humble prophet running in front of the chariot. He is running in front of the evil king. And you may say, what, what, what's the big deal here? How is this an act of humility and dependence? You must understand Ahab was an evil king who has done much evil to Israel and turned hearts away. Elijah had every right to say, I'm not going to go with King Ahab. But you see, part of the prophet's role in the Old Testament was to be the mouthpiece of the Lord to the king. And so this means as the king is saying, okay, the rain has come. I'm going back to Jezreel to announce what has happened The prophet humbly acts and runs in front of him saying, despite all the evil he has done, I'm going to trust that this is God's alliance and I will go and speak on behalf of God to the people of Israel. That would take humility. I mean, think about all the things that people have done wrong to you. Maybe a person particularly that has hurt you in ways that, to be honest, forgiveness is really difficult. In his humility, Elijah is obeying God over the king by actually joining with the king. 
This scene is a humble display that Elijah cares more about what God cares about than what his own heart cares about. The same king that caused so much damage in his submission to the evil princess Jezebel is now following God's prophet to announce the good news that God has sent the rain necessary for life and harvest. In short, uh, things will actually change to give you a little teaser, but this is for now a proper restoration of how prophets and kings were meant to function. Now, of course, we know as those who hold up God's sovereignty very highly in our lives, we we know that this is all God's doing. Everything he's doing in Elijah and Ahab, all of this is under God's great control. But the point we're supposed to take is that prayer is an act of humble dependence that leads to humble obedience. Prayer is an act of humble dependence that is meant to lead to humble obedience. So whether or not Ahab will take this grace and change and lead Israel back into worship of Yahweh is yet to be seen. But we do know that the most righteous acts of God's prophet were seen in his humble prayers of dependence. But in that regard, Elijah has a weakness. We could say, even with James, that Elijah is worthy of imitating But one thing we'll see through the book of 1 Kings, if you continue reading, is that Elijah was powerless to actually change the hearts of Israel. He could be obedient to God, he could lead the people, but he did not have inside him the ability to change human hearts. And so God in his grace paying attention to this pattern of his people who would love God for a season, then rebel for a season, love God for a season, rebel for a season, finally decided to do something in the flesh about it. He decided to send the promised prophet from Deuteronomy 18, the the one true and final prophet, to take on flesh and come down into the world. And throughout Jesus' ministry, we see that even though he knew all things, although he was God in the flesh and was in complete control, he would often depart to go and pray to his Father. Luke 5.16 says, But now even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. Right? Jesus is just being crammed in by all these people who want to hear him teaching, who want all of their infirmities healed. But then it says, But he would withdraw to desolate places to pray. In Matthew 4, in preparation for another type of God contest... Jesus goes against Satan face to face. But prior to this face to face battle, Jesus fasted and prayed for 40 days, showing he was a prophet with humble dependence. Later in John 17, under the stress of his upcoming false arrest and betrayal by Judas, he prayed for his disciples to realize that they were one with him and his father. When Peter proudly relied upon his own strength as Jesus told him, I must die and then rise three three days later. And Peter said, there's no way that's going to happen. Jesus says this to Peter in Luke 22, 31 and 32. Simon, Simon, behold, 
Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. As I read that this week, I wondered how many times has Jesus' prayer saved us from the evil one? How many times are we unaware of the temptation that is coming and how it will tempt us to do things that are mocking of Jesus' name where Jesus has interceded and prayed on our behalf? Where we, like Peter, have chosen our own strength over humble dependence and prayer, the Son of God, the Almighty One, prays humbly to the Father to save Peter and proud people like us. Later on, Jesus is feeling the crushing weight of what he will have to endure at the cross, and he asks his disciples to pray. Listen to this in Matthew 26, 38 through 40. Then Jesus said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. That's another way of saying pray. Pray with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Remember earlier, we pray according to the will of God. Jesus wasn't afraid to to bring his own emotions and his own insecurities in the moment of God. This is a serious task to bear the wrath of all of your people. But not my will, your will. And he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping and he said to Peter, so could you not watch or could you not pray with me one hour? We're a lot like Peter, aren't we? Like the disciples, we could barely pray one hour. We're distracted. We're we're moved by everything around us. The sleeping is upon us. Our commitment to Jesus often evades us. And we're unwilling to enjoy communion with him, with the God who's loved us. Thankfully, Jesus, as the humble prophet and king, continued his mission to the cross. This was the reason he came. And as he was nailed to that cross, he had the power in him to call a myriad of angels to come and rescue him off that cross and to judge all the wicked that were condemning him that day to his death. But instead he prayed. His humble dependence is what drove him to pray for us over and over on the cross. And by praying for us and by dying on the cross, he was paying the penalty for all of our prayerlessness. And he was actually going to accredit to us his perfect prayer life so that we could be freed from all condemnation and guilt. In fact, I would argue that his prayers from the cross are meant to be the loudest of words from the humblest of prophets. Just listen to a few. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. How how humble is that? He is the most innocent person to ever live without sin. He has every right to hold up his hand and say, hold on, I'm the innocent one here. These are the guilty ones. They deserve the cross. But instead, Father, forgive them. 
They know not what they do. Again, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then the craziest one to me, his last breath, which he could have used for anything. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The humblest, the most humble of prophets uses his dying breath to pray. In doing so, he was making absolutely clear how much he loves us and how far he was willing to go for us. In Hebrews 7.25, the author says this, Consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. As if his prayers on the cross were not not enough. Now ruling and reigning from the right hand of God. He is continually interceding and praying for us the same way he prayed for Peter. But notice two words in there I think that are really important. He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God. The author of Hebrews is presupposing that we know our neediness, that we have a nature like Elijah's and we're drawing near to God because we want him to pray for us and we want to be with him. And so the question is, are we drawing near? F.B. Meyer says this, this is a crazy quote, he says, though the Bible be crowded with golden promises from beginning to end, yet they will be inoperative until we turn them into prayer. It's as if God, and we could do a whole other sermon on this with Abraham and Moses and all these people, but it's as if God's will is up here. It's, it's like this cloud, and it's, it's ready to come down upon us. God is ready to send our answered prayers. But it, it functions inoperatively because we are prayerless. It's as if we would just take a string and attach it to the cloud and pull it down through our prayers. God is just at the ready to answer our prayers. He is ready for his will to come true, but because we're prayerless, we often don't receive the things that God is ready to give. I'm not talking about a prosperity gospel. I'm talking about things according to the will of God. Listen to, listen to what Jesus says in John 14, 13 and 14. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son, If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Jesus is talking about things according to his will. But oftentimes they're hanging there inoperative in our life because we don't pray. But when we pray in a way that is according to the will of God, revealed in scripture that actually glorifies God, not only might he answer, but it might provide enjoyment with communion with him. I want to close with a quote from C.S. Lewis that brings all of this together. It's one of my favorite quotes. C.S. Lewis had received a letter from someone in America who said, what, what's the point of praying? <laughs> right? It's kind of like, like us. If, if God's sovereign, if he's going to do what he wants, why pray? C.S. Lewis writes this back. And, and it, pay attention. He, he's talking about different parts of prayer. Okay? He writes back. He says, prayer is either a sheer illusion... Or 
a personal contact between embryonic, incomplete persons, ourselves, basically saying we're not what we will one day be, right? We're still maturing. We're, we're not fully grown yet. It's between us and the utterly concrete person, okay? Jesus himself. Prayer in the sense of petition, this is asking things, is a small part of it. Right, that's where we mostly pray, right, is where we're asking God for things. Lewis is actually saying that's a very, very small part of it. Confession of our sin is its threshold. So the way into prayer is actually confessing our own sin and need. Adoration, right, adoring God for who he is, is its sanctuary. It's what we're actually walking into. But then Lewis says this is the best part. The presence and enjoyment of God in prayer is the bread and the wine. In it, in prayer, God shows himself to us. So Providence Church, praying isn't just a means to get the things, although God hears those. But prayer is the means to the enjoyment of being with the God who came in the flesh, lived for us, died for us, rose for us, ascended, and now intercedes for us. Amen? All right, let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for your love. Thank you that you did not spare your only son, but gave him at cost to you, but as a free gift to us, as the one who lived the perfect life, particularly the life of humble dependence and prayer to the point of his last breath for us. And Jesus, we thank you that although that was enough, you rose victoriously and ascended to the right hand of the Father to intercede for us. And now we get the great privilege to humbly and boldly with confidence draw near through your flesh the torn veil to enjoy communion with the one who loves us. And so, Lord, help us to be drawn and allured into your presence by your grace, by communing with the one who rules and reigns and who is full of steadfast love and faithfulness. Lord, please do this for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.